Welcome to Overtime with the Sports Docs. On each of these mini-episodes, Catherine and I chat about a new topic or surgical technique in the field of sports medicine. We'll give you our quick take on the most recent data, ranging from operative indications, surgical approaches, post-op protocols, and most importantly, patient outcomes. We're excited to be in the studio today recording this episode on returning to play after arthroscopic stabilization for anterior shoulder instability. Now, we did do a whole episode on shoulder instability back in the March of 2021 with Dr. Mark Price. He's a shoulder surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital and the team physician for the New England Patriots. We discussed a lot on that two-part episode, including anterior and posterior instability, non-operative and surgical treatment, and different surgical approaches, including arthroscopic versus open bank cart repair and bone block procedures. It was a great discussion, and we definitely recommend checking it out if you haven't listened to it already. But today we're narrowing our focus to post-op rehab and return to play testing after arthroscopic anterior shoulder stabilization. We've spoken about return to play testing a lot on previous episodes too. We even did an entire episode with Dr. Robin West, team physician for the Washington Nationals, dedicated to this very topic, returning athletes to play after various orthopedic injuries. In that episode, we highlighted that there's often little to no data to guide safe return to sport after an orthopedic injury particularly those treated surgically. And unfortunately, that's also the case for athletes who undergo surgery for anterior shoulder instability. On today's episode, we're going to review an article titled Functional Rehabilitation and Return to Play After Arthroscopic Surgical Stabilization for Anterior Shoulder Instability, published in the December 2021 issue of Sports Health. In this case series, Dr. Brian Bosconi and colleagues at UMass evaluated 62 athletes who underwent arthroscopic bank art repair and were subsequently cleared to return to sports using both functional and psychological testing. Before we dive into the results of this paper, it is worthwhile to review the traditional methods of clearing athletes after bank art repair, as there is currently no validated return to sport assessment for this particular surgery. Sakati and colleagues performed a systematic review of 58 studies assessing return-to-play criteria in a 2018 article published in Arthroscopy. Unsurprisingly, the most common criteria used to clear an athlete after arthroscopic bank heart repair was time. 75% of studies used time from surgery as the sole criterion, with this most commonly used time point being six months post-op. 19% used strength and 14% used range of motion. Only one of the studies evaluated proprioceptive control as a metric for guiding return to play. All right, so that begs the question, when considering time from surgery, what time point do you mostly use? And would you ever clear someone earlier than six months, Ashley? So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, when I think about return to play testing, as I think most people do, I immediately think of ACL reconstruction. Um, there are now hundreds of articles published on return to play criteria after ACL reconstruction, but it wasn't that long ago that surgeons simply used time from surgery. And most commonly at that point, it was also six months, just like bank art repair. Um, and studies have now shown that incorporating assessments of neuromuscular control, such as Y balance and hop testing and psychological readiness to return to sport with the ACL RSI score leads to a lower rate of re-injury and contralateral leg injury. So I, as I assume you as well, I'm not using time alone as the only criteria to clear. If I am using time, it typically does end up being six months for contact athletes. I would not clear earlier than that for contact athletes um, just because of, of healing and getting back their motion and strength. What about you? Agree. So I think when I'm looking at the overall rehab, I'm thinking about, you know, what are they doing in those months prior to six? 
that six month mark. So in that first sort of stage, it's, you know, a little bit more about protection. Um, so, you know, that first six weeks, let's protect the repair. You know, you're keeping a little quiet in there. And then that next phase between like six weeks and three months, it's like, okay, let's get some restoration of motion. And then all of a sudden you're at three months working into four or five months and you're starting to work now on strength and some neuromuscular control. So, you know, we're very quickly at that six month mark and we've just kind of worked up the ladder of the basics. So I always sort of think about when you get to that six month mark, that's when you start to train to return to your sport. So I always sort of tell people at that like preoperative appointment at six months, like you're just sort of starting to engage. That doesn't mean you're playing a full game. That doesn't mean that you're playing full contact, you know, because it's really going to depend on what is the sport? What is the level of competition? Is this a high school athlete? Is this college? Or is this just someone who's like enjoys playing tennis? Um, so I think all those things have to be factored in. But yeah, before six months, I would be a no for me. So I think what you've really highlighted is that we can't use time alone. Um, and it's really important to highlight this because the overall redislocation rates for shoulder instability after arthroscopic repair, it ranges 10 to 15%. But in competitive collision athletes, like you just mentioned, they've demonstrated redislocation rates up to 51%, which is horrible. Um, and that suggests that we're just not adequately assessing readiness to safely return to sport in that high-risk cohort. So the goal of the paper today was to do exactly that which is to construct a functional and psychological assessment tool similar to the ACL one that we both use to guide safe return to sport after arthroscopic bank heart repair. Yep. So that retrospective review, they also included patients who went arthroscopic anterior bank heart repair for first-time dislocation event and participate in either high school or collegiate full contact, semi-contact, or overhead sports. Um, and the sports that they included were ice hockey, rugby, football, lacrosse, basketball. So all really um, high contact sports. And patients were excluded if they had prior dislocations, hyperlaxity, um, and their bite and score was greater than five. Um, or if they had associated pathology like a rotator cuff tear, slap tear, or off-track Hillsex lesion or glenoid bone loss greater than 10%. So all things that would really um, sort of change their outcome or really necessitate a different rehab protocol. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that they excluded um, – uh, they only included first-time dislocations because I think that's becoming more frequent treating first-time shoulder dislocations with surgical repair. But when we were in residency, like it was, the board answer was to treat all traumatic shoulder instability first non-operatively and then take them for surgical stabilization if they fail. And now we're seeing less of that. Um, do you treat all first-time shoulder dislocations with surgical repair? Um, and if so, why? I think, I wouldn't say I'm an always, um, but I think the data is really staggering that if you're looking at someone in their teens and you're telling them, you know, there's over a 90% chance that you're going to continue to dislocate. And then potentially when you dislocate, you're either going to end up in the emergency room because it's unable to reduce. Um, and you're going to have to go through like a sedation and a painful, you know, sort of reduction, um, or, you know, when you dislocate again, now you're going to increase the size of your injury or you're potentially going to have some bone loss or cartilage loss. You know, I think all of those things, when you're presenting a greater than 90% risk, that's a very hard sort of thing to say to um, a kid or a parent, hey, you should continue to rehab this. But I think the other side of that is, you know, you 
as someone gets a little bit older, you know, you just sort of say, you know, it's a risk assessment. You know, when someone's an adult, you can say, hey, you have the ability to say, I do want to try and rehab this. And if I dislocate again, fine, you know, then I'll deal with it. Um, and I can understand the risks of further injury or, you know, this continuing to happen. So I think it's more about just like an education and them understanding the statistics aren't necessarily in their favor, but it's not, you know, 100% chance. So they can sort of make that educated decision, especially as an adult. What about you? Are you doing everyone first time? I completely agree with what you said. So not everyone, I mean, we'll have some patients that have shoulder instability from just like a fall down the stairs, right? They're not contact athletes. Those are ones that as long as they don't have like a displaced bank guard fracture or a loose body in the joint that I think that we can at least try non-operative management first. But in an athlete, I, I would say I'm kind of trying to steer them or guide them towards considering surgical repair just to decrease that risk. Because I almost think about it like a chronic ACL. Like the longer you wait to surgery, you have more cartilage disease and meniscus disease. I worry about having that second episode of instability and having that damage. And because you see people down the line that have shoulder arthritis in their 40s and 50s after having a bank car stabilization and you wonder, did they have multiple uh, episodes of instability prior to having this. And is that why they have this arthritis? So I think we're very similar. Yeah, for sure. So then back to the study, um, patients were immobilized in a sling for four weeks. Um, at one week post-op, PT was started and it focused on progressive range of motion. At six weeks, strengthening was initiated. Um, at 13 weeks, light plyometric exercises were started. And then functional rehab began at 16 weeks post-op and included weekly functional and psychological assessments. Um, so... PT protocol after a bank art repair. Uh, let's start with sling mobilization, early range of motion and strengthening. What does yours look like? Is it is it similar to this? I would say actually it's similar, except sometimes I'll extend it to six weeks. So um, as far as their sling. So if they're younger and it's a larger repair, I might extend them to six weeks just, and I sort of lay the crepe of like, hey, there's, I'm making you stiff and you're going to have to work through some of that stiffness in the next phase of range of motion. But I'd rather you be a little tighter early because I think you're probably going to stretch it out um, enough. So I would say, depending on the size of the repair, the age of the athlete, I'm going to be somewhere between four and six weeks in the sling. Um, I do start physical therapy right away, probably at like day two or three. Um, I do think that helps even just like on the mental health side of things. Um, early, I try and get them to like go on the bike, do that kind of stuff. Um, and then at that six weeks, mm -hmm. yeah, strengthening is initiated. I think the rest is sort of like everything you said, I sort of go along with um, where they're beginning that functional rehab at that four month mark. Um, and then progressing just depending on, you know, what the sport and starting to do more sport specific kind of things then. Any differences for you in sling wear? Are you conservative or? Yes. I feel like when we talked about meniscus repairs, it was very similar. I'm also very conservative with this. I do a sling for six weeks in all. Um, I start them in PT, but I'm happy to hear you mention the mental health aspect because they don't do very much those first few weeks. It's just like pendulums and, you know, maybe, you know, some cervical spine range of motion and digit and elbow range of motion, but they're not doing a lot with their shoulder. Um, I tell them all the exact same thing. You're going to get stiff. I want you to get stiff and they all stretch out. 
I have not had a bank art, like not stretch out and get back their motion. Cause I just think they'll get there. I don't want them to get there too soon. So I really restrict external rotation, um, until about like the four week mark. And then I'm progressing at only 10 degrees every week to two weeks. So, um, they take some while to get back their full motion. And then we work on strengthening. And like you said, the, after that, it's pretty similar to the protocol they used. Yeah. Um, all right. So the functional assessments that they included were eight exercises. Um, so you can access the study, uh, through the links on our, um, on our Instagram. So you have them all, but basically in brief, they're overhand band reach, closed kinetic chain, extremity stabilization test, upper extremity Y balance, the one arm hop test, uh, posterior shoulder endurance test, trunk stability push up long arm plank ball tap and plank weight stacking. And so all of those images and exercises will be on our Instagram, which is sports docs pod. So if you don't already follow us, you should. (laughs) Um, And the psychological assessment was performed (laughs) using the Tampa scale of kinesiophobia. Um, That's a score of 16 or less is required to pass. So the average time to pass psychological testing was five months. Um, the average time to pass functional testing was six months, and athletes returned to full competition at an average of 6.5 months. Patient report outcome measures include the SANE score, ASES, WOSI scores, and they all significantly improved from pre-op to post-op. The redislocation rate at two years was 6.5%. Yeah, so incredible. So really interesting. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's interesting to see that they pass their psychological sort of testing before the functional testing, um, that they were, you know, comfortable sort of engaging um, return to play before they were like, you know, quote unquote, physically ready, because, you know, we don't really know if that it's not all validated that this makes them physically ready, but we're cert- certainly like the authors really put them through their paces. Um, so yeah, I thought really, really great to see that that redislocation rate at the two year mark was only 6.5%. So much better. Um, so what are your thoughts, Ashley? Do you think mm-hmm. this is about, you know, testing them? What makes them you know, better and more successful because they're tested? Is it these tests that are the key? You know, kind of what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think this is uh, really interesting. So the psychological testing, passing that before they were functionally ready, I think just highlights the importance of having to functionally test, having to have these tests because athletes and doctors may think that people are ready to go back in before they are. And this reminds me when I was a fellow um, at Rothman, we were doing a study on return to play testing and clearing people using the checklist. And then we compared that to historic controls and people were only sent to do the return to play checklist when the patient, the PT and the surgeon all thought they were ready and they failed like 60% of the time, which means that 60% of the time doctors would have cleared someone and athletes would have gone running back into sport before they were actually ready. So I think this is really important that, you know, you may feel ready, but you're not ready. So it's important to test function. But I also do think it's some of these exercises as well too. I mean, these are really involved exercises. I'm looking at them my my rehab protocol does not include all of these i think there it's really um it's really intense and it's it's really good it's well structured uh i definitely will include some of these in my rehab protocol but i think also including these in the rehab that functional rehabilitation is also probably contributing to the lower redislocation rate what do you think i think same same like i think two things i think there's a mental piece to having testing that really gets people's buy-in to sort of 
continue to work hard, to continue to do their home exercise program, to, you know, continue to attend physical therapy. If they know there is like a criteria, like a test they have to pass, it keeps them engaged because it sort of feels like, all right, um, I'm going to keep working hard. So I think testing alone has some value. Um, and then when you do look at these tests, they're mm -hmm. hard. Um, things that I test in my office right now, like when I have post-operative shoulders is like, we'll do push-up testing. Um, so we'll do like some force plate testing for like the YTI sort of scapular test, but I'm certainly not doing, um, more of the, um, sort of endurance or like Y balance, um, stuff. So I think those are really nice ads. So I think it's a rigorous assessment. So I mm -hmm. think it, the authors did a really good job of trying to make something very hard. Um, I didn't see anything yes. about how many times it took somebody to pass. If like, you know, what's the first pass rate? Yeah. You know what I mean? And how many pass after they fail. Cause I always tell my ACL patients, I'm like, you're probably going to fail, but don't worry. Like 95 plus percent patients pass on their second try. So like, yeah. don't be discouraged, you know, do your rehab and then we'll test you again. It's good to have that data to give patients so that they don't feel discouraged when they ultimately likely fail the first time. I also wish yeah. they had had a breakdown on which tests were failed the most, because I yeah. feel like just anecdotally, my patients all fail the Y balance and their ACL return to play testing. And I feel like knowing which one they failed more might lead me to want to include that earlier on in the rehab or put more emphasis on it because it's something that patients aren't rehabbing through traditional means. So I wish that right. they had put that in the, in the paper. Yeah. I think there's also some value in like doing the testing early. And we've talked about this before with ACL return to play testing, where I integrate tests early that I don't expect them to pass, but I want them to sort of have a preview of their expectation. Yeah. I think over the years it will be studied and studied again and compared to a historic control, or maybe even they'll do a randomized study and we'll have more data. But I think this is certainly better than what people are currently using, which as we know, is likely six months, you're good to go. So I definitely will start to include some of this in my bank car return to play. Yeah, I definitely think changing my practice. Thank you for listening to our overtime chat. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all things sports medicine. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportsdocspod. We love your feedback.